Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today is Derek. I'm going to owe Rob a case of beer, Heemsbergen. I am, because I, I predicted that not only would you not really like Dragon Quest Seven, but that you would never in a million years finish it, and boy, did you prove me wrong. I'm getting there. I'm almost done. I'm I'm rounding the corner. I'm going to be... Now, granted, it has taken me like two damn months to almost... Oh, it's a long-ass game. Unless your name is Mike Solosi, then there's no goddamn way that you could beat that game in a week and a half. Mike Solosi, hello! Hello, and in my defense, it was two weeks exactly... Oh That's still God. totally but insane. It was, it was still crazy. I don't recommend playing any game at that pace, let alone a, you know, wait around RPG. But I, I really like Dragon Quest VII. It was my first time playing it as well. We're going to talk about it a little bit. I, I have some more thoughts. Uh, sure. I'm, I'm at about the 50-hour mark. I'm, I'm rounding the corner on, on beating it. And I actually have some questions for Mike, so he's going to help me out with that a little bit. Okay. And, and then we have uh, the Ace Attorney at Law, Jesse Wu. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. We're gonna we're gonna talk about some stuff with you here in a little bit. Uh, we're we're gonna have to delve into some uh, journalistic integrity and things like that. And I want to no. get I want to get a lawman's uh, opinion okay. on these. Okay, things. okay. I, so we have journalists here, and so wouldn't you want to ask the journalist journalist qu- journalist questions? What we, yeah, none of us have any integrity. So no, no, no. no that's also true. We did, I need we also... to talk to to Jesse though because I need to find out if um, a divination seance is admissible evidence in court. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, or can you channel uh, spirits in, or is that like a state statute? I do that all the time. They did it in Rashomon, damn it. Like, come on, it's okay. You can do that. That seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah. But no, we're, we're Rashomon prove that it's, you know, those aren't absolute truths. It's it's all about perspective. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We have a lot to talk about this week, including why it took me almost a month to get a Dragon Quest Builders review up. Uh, but why don't we start with uh, a little game that uh, came out today, uh, day of recording. We have uh, the Pokemans. Now, is this uh, Pokemon Gold and Silver? No, no, no. It's, is it Black and White? No, no, no. It's, nope, almost. Is it, is it X and Y? Uh, no, no, no. Getting warmer. Cool. Soul Silver and Heart Gold? No. no, no. Look to the sky, Rob. No, no. Uh, is, is it? Uh, is it Uranus and Venus? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yes. No. That's exactly what it is. Pokemon Sun and Moon. Yes, sir. I'm playing it right this second. All right. So I have not played a Pokemans since uh, my my foray into Pokemon Blue back when I was a child. Uh, I actually found it. In really? My that long? Yeah, I, I actually found my copy uh, down in our basement storage. Like, Jackie and I were kind of consolidating stuff, and I, I found my old Pokemon Blue in my Game Boy Pocket. <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, oh, man, I remember spending a lot of time on this thing. So, like, Pokemon has changed a lot since I played it. And i, I got to be honest, I'm a little interested in picking this one up, but I'm also, like, in incredibly intimidated by it. Nah, man, this is it. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one to play if you haven't played Pokemon in Generations. Uh, More than ever, I think this has made so many small quality of life improvements that I I, I can never go back. Um, I mean, from the, uh, let's see, probably 18 hours I had this game in my possession. Um, All of the small things like, I can't even tell you, like, these are things that if you haven't played since Blue, uh, they're going to be (laughs) <laughs> so so dramatically different than anything you're used to that you're just going to be like, oh, that, that hasn't been a thing for a while. Things like um, when you go to uh, take your Pokemon out of a PC, it goes straight to the organization part. You don't have to flip through a menu to choose, do you want to withdraw? Do you want to deposit? Do you want to move? Uh, you can immediately access all trading and battling functions just by touching a button on your bottom screen. Uh, 
Um, you can see what moves are effective against enemy Pokemon. Once you've fought them at least once, it'll show a little icon next to any moves on your screen. So that way you don't... It takes all the guesswork out of stuff, because I know that for some people, they like memorizing type uh, weaknesses and, and strengths, which is fine, and, and I still have all that information filed away too, but... Every once in a while, it's like, oh, I forget. Is this because sometimes type matchups don't always work? Like something might be resistant to one type, but uh, it may not do extra damage against the same type. So, so but it's not going to really affect strategy. It's just you don't need to have certain parts of it committed to memory anymore. Right. Exactly. And the the biggest change of all, I think, aside from all the incredibly cool presentation tweaks, like this this game looks fantastic. There's actual cinematography happening. Um, like the framing of scenes is just better. It's, it's presented in a way that makes it feel like it's truly the next step in Pokemon. But the, the big thing that everybody's talking about, as they should be, is the removal of HMs. Holy crap. I, I have absolutely no idea what that is. Uh, is that... Uh, uh, so H- HMs were the... Uh, no, no H- HM, HM. Okay, I'm going to say that that stands for Hardware Manufacturer. It stands for Hot Males. No, uh, Seriously? It's stands- no. <laughs> HMs or hidden machines, so uh, Pokemon can learn, you know, lots and lots of moves, as you know. There are the TMs, technical machines, which are just items that teach Pokemon, you know, set moves that they can use in battle. And the HMs are a sort of different category that you can teach to Pokemon, category of moves. Uh, but these moves all have bunch functions outside of battle, so things like being able to clear rocks out of your way, cut trees down, surf on water, that kind of stuff. So the annoying thing about HMs is that to continue exploring in the game, you would always have to have one or maybe two Pokemon with a bunch of HM moves taking up their their precious limited move slots. So there's a common practice of having what's called an HM slave. People always have like one crappy right. Pokemon that they just load up with the HMs that they need to explore. It so would usually thing- be like a, like a water Pokemon plus a Tropius because Tropius could learn like five different HMs. And in, in the later Pokemon games, I think there was eight HM moves. So yeah. you sometimes needed two slaves. It, it was just completely encumbering. Right, and then like in uh, Ruby Sapphire, they had three water ones. They had Dive, Waterfall, and Surf. And there was Whirlpool at one point, yeah? So it's just annoying that you had to take up one of your, you know, you have six party slots, and you'd have to always take up one to two of them with Pokemon that you didn't actually care about using in battle. You just needed to have them around. So Sun Moon does away with that, and they have Ride Pokemon. And basically it certain points in the story, you'll just unlock a Pokemon that you can ride to suit whatever end you need. So, like, uh, you can ride a Tauros, and it's just sort of a faster way of getting around, and he can break through rocks. Or you can ride um, I think it's a Sharpedo was the one that lets you swim later on. So instead of having Surf, you just ride a Sharpedo around. And it's it's fantastic, because you don't have to do anything extra to use them. You just sort of open the menu and deploy them whenever you need to deploy them. So it's one of those small quality of life fixes that goes a long way in making the game feel less of... It's it's less stagnant, less monotonous, less uh, irritating, I guess, you know. It's these little things that I don't think... I think that for, they were holding on to them for the sake of keeping a tradition alive, but players got sick of that a long time ago, and it was just like, all right, you guys need to listen to feedback and change it up, and they did. So, And not to mention the game is just, like, super pretty and... New Pokemon designs are cool, and I want to explore it, and yeah. So you're saying this is the one I should do? Like, if I, if I was if I was going to jump in, this is... Yeah, and the nice thing is uh, there are a couple things that make this good for players who haven't touched a Pokemon game in a while, and they're, one, you know, you're starting, you're kind of starting fresh in that this region is geographically distinct from all the other ones in the Pokemon world, so it's it's kind of like 
you know, your character is new to the region, and then if you as a player haven't played in a while, you're also new to Pokemon again. So it's like, okay, you're encountering Pokemon that you don't know, and uh, the game does a great job of sort of introducing you to the mechanics in the world and stuff. And the other thing is, this game brings back, uh, it has a new thing, Alolan, the, the region is called Alola. They have Alolan forms of old Pokemon, and they're all, as far as I know, no spoilers, they're all from the original 150. So they're like, there's like an Alolan Meowth, an Alolan Rattata, an Alolan Executor. And these are all, they look slightly different than you're used to. And they, some of them have new typings, some of them have new abilities. Uh, but the idea behind that is that they've all sort of evolved to suit the unique um, atmosphere of Alola, the, uh, the u- ecology. What's the word I'm looking for? What Environment, I guess. They've all, they've all adapted to Alola. And so that's led them to take on different traits. Like there's a... Alolan Vulpix, the little fox fire Pokemon. Now it's an ice Pokemon because it lives in snowy areas. So, um, and then the original one still exists too. But it's kind of cool because if if you just played Red Blue and it's been forever, you'd be like, oh, I I know this guy. He's different now. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's kind of a neat throwback, I think. A good way to to sort of appeal to people's nostalgia while also making something new for everyone. Hmm. I don't know, man. It's cool. Uh, you can you can throw a Pokeball without having to go into a menu anymore. I love it so. I, much. I did read that, and and that was like okay. That but but what's so funny is that, and and I'm I promise I'm not doing this to swing it back to Dragon Quest, but those are the the little <laughs> things that, especially on a handheld, make a game so pleasant to play. Like yeah, going back and forth between like Shin Megami Tensei four and Dragon Quest seven, and I'm like oh. Man, Shin Megami Tensei 4 is really made for the handheld, and it does so many smart things with the UI, and it feels yeah. so good. And, like, even the UI in Dragon Quest Seven feels a little, like, loose. Like, it, it yeah. constantly feels like it's got some input lag on it, and so mm-hmm. to hear that Pokemon really takes advantage of being on a handheld, I mean, that that has a serious appeal to me. Yeah, they've they've totally refreshed the UI. And because Pokemon has always been a handheld series, I think it's important that they continue to innovate on that front because, you know, people have increasingly less time to play games. And especially with a game series like Pokemon that we've seen so many iterations of thus far, mm-hmm. it's important that they continue to, to present it in new ways that makes you like, okay, cool, this is different enough and improved enough from the last one that I want to sink time into it again. Yeah, Pokemon's always had incremental improvements, and like and uh, but I mean even if uh, Rob were to go to say the fourth or fifth gen, he would notice a lot of things because when he played the special defense stat didn't exist. Right. Yeah. And I, uh, I don't I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like every indication is that this new one is uh, breaking the mold more than previous iterations broke the mold, and it's almost all for the positive. Everyone really, really likes this game so it far. Is, yeah. And it's absolutely still Pokemon at its core. It's still a game where you go on a journey, and uh, this one, you don't have gyms anymore, which is kind of cool. You do these island trials, so it's it's sort of similar, but they reframe it all, and there's, like, mini-games involved and stuff, so it's not just the sort of straightforward gym do battles. You, do you guys take it to the Pokemon eugenics level of, like trying to make sure that you're breeding the right Pokemon, and, like, do you guys play with, with your friends a lot and, like, battle before, them? Cause, but, cause that, uh, that holds zero... That, that gets to my whole nature of, like, I'm not a competitive gamer anymore. I'm a cooperative gamer. And so, like, if, if there was a... I, this is one of the reasons I wish, like, Dragon Quest Nine. I wish I had people to play that with, because that would have been amazing. But, like, 
I think that I'd be missing out on a whole like portion of Pokemon that people love so much because I'm not competitive. I um, there's different levels of Pokemon eugenics as you put them. Uh, there's like you know you can breed Pokemon together so that you pass certain moves down and to, to certain offspring, or mm-hmm. you can try to breed offspring that have certain natures. Natures affect stats in small ways, or you can breed offspring to try and get good EVs and IV. I'm sorry, IVs, which are stands for etern- internal values which affects stats in even more minute ways. There, there's, yeah. there's staggering no. depth. But, <laughs> but there's, I, it's absolutely not required. Yeah, okay. Absolutely not. okay. And, and what Sun Moon does is it makes all of those systems more transparent than ever, so that if you want to do them, you can, with, with less of the guesswork. Because, like, back when these things were first introduced into the series, they were so they were behind the curtain to such a degree that, like, you had to go online to figure out what the hell people were talking about. Yeah. And it was like, I don't even know what that means. And and things like EVs, effort values, you would have to raise on Pokemon by doing things like fighting certain other Pokemon. Like, you had to go to a certain area in the game. It's like, what? oh, I want to raise my attack stat. I got to only fight Rattatas for a while. Like, it, yeah. was, it was so... For, for, speed, it's, for speed, it's Zubat. And for special, I think it was... Oh shoot! Was it Oddishes? I I, I, I remember. Oh, dude, I, 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 no I remember trying to do EV farming when I was deep into Pokemon Diamond ten years ago. Yeah, but, it was uh, it was a pain in the ass. No, it's awful. It, not recommended. So okay. so now those things still exist, but they're a lot easier to to manipulate because the game kind of makes it clearer. And there are other ways to do that. But it's not just like fighting certain Pokemon. There are mini games and other methods of sort of acquiring that. Uh, behind-the-scenes currency, if that's what you want to do. Or, if you don't want to do that, skip it. Uh, and you can just breed Pokemon to make ones you want and just say, screw it, I don't care, you know, this is what I want. Or you can just not breed at all. You can only capture. Like, Yeah, I, that that's part of the reason I, I want to give this one a shot is because, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not going back to this game to slam it at all, but, like, you know, Shin Megami Tensei is basically demon Pokemon. And for the longest time in Apocalypse, right. it, it, for the longest time in SMT4 Apocalypse, like... That game gives you so much, so many different variables for taking on every challenge, like, and it has a, a deep difficulty curve, a very steep difficulty curve. But then, like, the end of the game really comes down to if you do not have these super demons that you can only either get through the DLC, which is kind of disgusting, and I think Atlas gets a free pass on that sort of stuff. I, I don't understand why Atlas gets away with it, but they kind of have these super demons that are only available to DLC people. Unless you breed the super demons or pay for the DLC, you're going to run into a final boss that you legit can't beat. And so, like, that's when the game kind of took a turn where it was it was all about the meta game, like making sure that you had had fused your demons correctly. And so if I can play a full game of Pokemon without doing that, I think I'll be happier for it. That that kind of plays into my like. Yeah. I want to play a game, get an experience, and then move on. Yeah, you, you know can definitely I mean? do that. Okay. Okay. By by the way, Derek, have you beat Shin Megami Tensei Four Apocalypse yet? No, I'm still at the part I talked about last time. So so you do not know my pain just yet. <laughs> no, okay. not yet. Okay. I have like six things on my now playing list. I, I was kind of I, I found it interesting that some other reviewers brought up that the the ending of that game is pretty weak and and of course like the the internet being what it was people then started to defend it that hadn't gotten to it yet mm-hmm. so we're we're gonna talk a little bit about that uh, when we when we get to Blizzard but it sounds like Pokemon's pretty cool and maybe maybe this is the one to pick up I just don't 
there's a little game coming out in January on January 20th, Mike Solosi, I believe that's when it's coming out. That's, that is, that's the current listed date, but I, I'm living in fear that it gets pushed a little bit. I'm okay with Dragon Quest VIII getting pushed, because honestly, like, I've had a lot of Dragon there's, Quest. <laughs> there's at least one 50-hour RPG going coming out in each of the first five months of the year. Yeah, it's a, it's a little ridiculous right now. Yeah. Um, Tales of Berseria comes out in January, too. Oh, yeah, I it still- does. I still have to play Tyranny. Like, I have Tyranny on my computer, and I'm just, like, I'm surrounded by video games that I need to play right now. And I still need to finish the first Trails of Cold Steel, so, yeah, I'm just behind. I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to get to that. I, I really don't. <laughs> I, I, no, I just, I bounced off it a little bit. I, 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 I know That's Derek, too bad. well, Derek told me it started out really slow, and boy, he wasn't kidding. Like, that. I just, I don't know, I, I, I think that my problem with Cold Steel is that I find it to be one of the, Man, I'm going to get lit on fire for this, but I'm just going to go right ahead and say it. I find it to be a game that is complex for the sake of being complex. Like, I don't think the game needs to have... I don't think so at all. Well, but but what I mean is... When you say that, I think, like, Disgaea or, like, any... uh... Compile Heart or Idea Factory game where they have like a billion menus and right, right. It's maybe not that bad, but in terms of the JRPGs that I traditionally play, it's a little happy with oh, you have these you know items that you put in your weapons and they unlock different skills and okay, you're earning three different types of experience points and these are spells that affect this area and 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 like I get it and I get that some people really really like that and but I think that's why I've gravitated so hard to Dragon Quest is because like. Like, that's just a very traditional-ass, traditional JRPG. And Cold Steel was just hitting me with so much at the start that I just... I, I wasn't sure what was important or not. Does that make sense? Like, Shin Megami Tensei hits you with, it is important to hit the weaknesses. And it's like, okay, I can I can grasp that. And, and meanwhile, with uh, Cold Steel, I just didn't really like, okay, you've got these different things, but I don't know why they're important. Are they important? Should I be focused on them? And I think I, that's also from very limited time with the game, and that's not me attacking it. It's just the no, way it's I it, it's the way I felt walking into that game was that I was just surrounded by systems, and I wasn't sure what I should be paying attention to and what I shouldn't be. Like, what's the fluff? What's what's the stuff that like I don't really need to worry about, and what's the stuff I really need to worry about? And I I do think sometimes games have a hard time with that. They don't do a good job of explaining what you should be focused on. And and granted, I, I think the only reason I played Apocalypse so much was because I had that experience with Shin Megami Tensei Four. I, I think Shin Megami Tensei Four just throws you into the deep end of the pool and says, "Die, mother." And, like, <laughs> just steamrolls your ass. Like, yeah. I think that game was very guilty of that. But I, I don't know. Cold Steel and I just didn't – we didn't see eye to eye. We, I was like, I, I, I understand you and I respect you, but I just don't think this relationship is going to work out. My problem is not disliking what it's bringing to the table. It's just that there's too many RPGs and not enough time. That's probably the other problem. I, I love the fact that it's on a handheld, though. Like, that is... Man, when when I give a test day, uh, as a teacher, when I give, like, four tests on a day, I'm like, that's four hours Dragon Quest, baby. Like, here we go. <laughs> and and so I'm just sitting there at my desk, and the kids are taking their tests, and I'm just, like, leveling up. Oh, liquid metal slime! Like, gotta get it. Gotta get it. Uh, I might as well talk just briefly about Dragon Quest Seven. Um... So I, I really like it. I'm at the point where I finished up uh, all the major islands. So, uh, Mike, you said right. that's, that's like 70% of the way through. 
I think the level cap has been lifted, but I'm not sure. And that's yeah, actually um, the island with the lighthouse and the dungeon inside there uh, don't have a level cap anymore. And the rest of the okay. game after that, you don't need to worry about level caps. Okay, so I can go back to that. Okay, because that man, uh, but if you if you go, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, yeah, sure. if you if you go back to the uh, the the past, the distant past versions of those islands, the level caps will still be there. But in all of the new areas that unlock and the new monsters that you fight, none of them will be level capped. Okay. I reached the level cap very quickly in this game, and I don't know if that's just because I was grinding like crazy, but, you know, I've been... My hero has not been able to level up his skills for, like, ten hours. That's, and that's, that's bad. I, I, that's I, I managed to stay under it. I think once or twice I might have hit the level cap because my uh, um, Mervin would catch up to the hero and uh, and rough a little bit, but... It wasn't a major problem for most of the game for me. Okay, so I that's kind of my first issue with the game, is that I, I think it does a very, very bad job of explaining that level cap nonsense. I yep. think that even a little text message like, huh, I don't feel myself getting stronger. Maybe we should fight some harder enemies. Like, that Like that no. would have fixed that. Like that that's yeah, just... they, they really they don't even explain the level cap mechanic. They just mention at the Abbey, uh, you need to fight strong monsters in order to level up without really saying yeah. that there's hard caps in different regions or, or telling you if you need to go to a new region to level up. They, yeah. they don't communicate it at all. Uh, that game does not have an overworld map to tell you what all the towns look like and what they're called, which is really obnoxious when you need to find specific places. Um, I, and, I, I struggled with that sometimes, yes. Yep. And that actually leads to, I think, the game's biggest problem, which is because it is so copy-paste, like you talk to the mayor in one town who they use the exact same character model for the mayor in another town, and in another town he's an asshole. In this town he's a virtuous yeah. man trying to help yeah. you. The, the model, like like the guy in green with an orange cape and a and sort of a yeah. hair that goes up two <laughs> different directions. Yep. Yeah, that guy has a, yeah, a total range of personalities. And in, in the town where everyone speaks with a Russian accent, Oof. he's a real jerk. That That's the game's biggest problem, which is that all these stories are so interesting, but since it's all copy and paste, uh, almost budget title-esque, none of it stands out in my head. Like, I did the thing where you could, like, read about previous chapters, and I just went, I have no visual memory of any of this. Like, th this is all... I'm a very visual learner. Like, I, I think that's one of the reasons why, like, my favorite Final Fantasies are, like, the most striking visually. Like, Final Fantasy VII is, you can't get much more visually striking than that game. And those those are, like, memories to me. They've been, like, burned into my head. Dragon Quest VII has awesome stories, but, man, when you're talking to the same dude or the same child that rops back on their heels over and over again in their idle <laughs> state, like, they're, they're, there's nothing. like. And so I think Dragon Quest VII's a good game. Like, I like it. I In some ways, I like it more than Dragon Quest IX, and I think that those games are actually the most similar out of the, the Dragon Quest games that I've played. But, man, Seven just... I, I wish that they had differentiated the areas more because certain areas will stick out in your head like the the excavation site that doesn't look like anything else in the game so like you remember that area but like every town is exactly the same and made with the same models and yeah on a super nintendo or like the playstation one version of the game which was basically a super nintendo game for all intents and purposes that's fine but like 
man, does that just make this game so forgettable. Like, And it's a real shame because I, th- I think there's really, really good stuff in here. I've enjoyed my time with it. I'm positive on it. I just wish that it does not even come close to the personality of Dragon Quest VIII. Like yeah, what? Eight and nine were the first two Dragon Quest games that used a, a wide variety of character models to let you distinguish between uh, important characters better. To a degree, every Dragon Quest from, say, three through seven uh, has that problem of all NPCs looking alike. And in, and yeah. in seven, there's so many of these islands. I think there's about 20. Yeah. And, uh, and um, <laughs> um, they all, like... 15 of them look basically the same. There's a uh, some of them have distinguishing features like the uh the the one that's sort of like Barcelona with the crazy architect guy. That one that one's pretty distinct. Yeah. I, but I, but but for the most part you're absolutely right. Though there's so many recycled models in this game and that are and it's so deeply rooted in this uh visual traditionalism of Dragon Quest that it can get your head spin a little, make your head spin a little bit trying to remember, you know, which guy in green with the pointy hair was evil and which one was a de- was decent. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I I still think it's a good game. I've had a lot of fun with it. Um, I I actually like their job class system. I I know that a lot of people didn't like the fact that with the advanced jobs you don't remember those skills, but I, I think that that incentivizes you to push and get the, the like super jobs, the master level jobs in yes. the game. The, the, I, I think the, the fans' biggest problem with that was, uh, or at least my interpretation, is that in the original version, um, each class just learned a new skill at every level and everything was saved permanently. But that also mean, meant that you could just have everyone learn every skill and have everyone as a uh, as a champion or druid at the very end, and, and know all of the most advanced skills. But they they want I think they wanted to incentivize class diversity a little bit. Yeah. And the end result is the three super classes learn just like five skills in each of the first few levels. And yeah, yeah and and it makes getting to those classes really really fun. Actually, I re- I, re- I had a lot of fun you know leveling up heroes and champions and druids in this game. Yeah, I, I've I've been enjoying it. I'm gonna keep playing it. I, I'm going to beat it so that uh, you know somebody and, has somebody has to buy me a case of beer. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna avoid spoilers, <laughs> hey, but okay now that <laughs> now that you have the whole map unlocked, um, you're really gonna be dealing with the sort of the world shaping stakes of uh, of the story and and you know discovering more about places you've already been and not just unlocking more puzzle pieces in the world. It, yeah. It, it's good. Dragon Quest Seven has a very satisfying endgame. I'm looking forward to hearing you uh, and talk about it. I'm very much looking forward to beating it before Dragon Quest Eight comes out because I am so hyped to play Dragon Quest Eight again. Like I was watching videos on YouTube and just reminding myself, like I really loved that game. Like that. That was I. I want to say that that was the last JRPG that I really truly loved. That like, came out in 2004, man. I I know. Uh, like, cause I I don't wow. I I love Xenoblade, but I wouldn't call that like a traditional Japanese role playing game. You know what I mean? Like that was that was different in a lot of ways, and I I still really love that game. But like a traditional, well, no, what am I saying? There's Persona in there too. No, I and that wasn't a true statement. I was that was flying off the cuff and not thinking clearly. <laughs> but like, um, I I think it was because like the next year Final Fantasy XII like depressed me. I think that's why, like, I, I was associating that feeling of, like, 
Man, one of the reasons I got Dragon Quest VIII was for that Final Fantasy XII demo, and boy, did I not like that game. But, like, Dragon Quest VIII is fantastic and so brimming with personality. I mean, I basically married Jessica, so, like, I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. I should get her to cosplay as that for MAGFest. (laughs) She could pull it off. I'm almost surprised she hasn't already. I know, right? Um, (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's Dragon Quest VII. And then uh, Builders, my review went up. Um, I, I think that... I think people were a little nice to that game in reviews. I think it has some some deep problems, but it's not the building. It's not the exploration. That stuff is fantastic. I don't know how much you guys have played it. Mike, I think you were playing it a little bit. Uh, no, I don't own it. I've been distracted ah! by, by a bunch of different games, including uh, Dragon Quest VII, because I, I, after I finished it, uh Dragon Quest Seven. I was. I played the. I leveled up a little bit for the end game dungeons for a few oh, weeks. Okay. But there's just too many video games, and I actually haven't touched Builders. Okay. Okay. Right. Too bad. Derek, Jesse, nobody else uh, played Builders. I'm the only one here. Um, I played the demo, but I, that's one that I want to get. But I'm kind of waiting for maybe the holidays. The other Mike. The other Mike has played Builders. Yeah, and, that's what you're thinking. And and, and uh, Salbato actually pushed me to to keep playing because Chapter Three made me want to kill myself. Uh, it was just that that game's worst feature is the combat, and you know it's it's a sprinkling. It's not something that the game should be focused on. And in Chapter One and Two, it's certainly not. And then in Chapter Three, it's like okay, we're gonna put an entire chapter basically built around our combat, and it was just awful. It just kept going and going and going. And all you're doing is smacking things with your sword two or three times, then running away slightly. There's no dodge mechanic. There's no lock-on mechanic. And again, this game does not need to be about the combat, so that's why I was so annoyed by it. It's like, why are you making me do so much of this if it's the worst part of your game? And then Chapter 4 actually brings a lot of really cool mechanics, a horrible final boss fight, but like... It brings a lot of really cool mechanics, and so I'm, I'm sitting here playing this game, and I wanted to make it really clear in my review, I really want there to be a sequel. I really, like, there are so many cool places they can go with this stuff. They can make the combat more interesting. I mean, at one point, you get a really cool, like, projectile attack that you use for a specific enemy type, and I'm like, yes, more of that. More of, like, building a cannon and firing it at people, like... Let's do some like make me let me build a Gatling gun to just like mow down a bunch of metal slimes like <laughs> like there there th- this game is just ripe with possibilities so you know it sold very well in Japan I think it sold well here in America I I'm sure they're working on a sequel because you know it I don't think this game cost a whole lot to make it it's got a little bit of a budget title feel in some ways and I I'm totally down with another one of these games I just think that people were a little a little kind to it. I think it kind of avoided some criticism because it was a first game and it was a first attempt at a Minecraft with more of a story component. Um, I, I want to see another one though. And, and I apologize that it took so long to get that review out there, but like I did not want to play it. I did not want to play the game through chapter three. And I think I'm not going to be the only gamer that has that feeling playing through this. It really, don't highlight your worst feature. It's like in a, in a Metal Gear game where they, where they give you an action section. And it's like, well, that's not the fun part of your game. Why are you making me do that so much? That's This kind of blows. Like I'm reminded of Rune Factory, Tides of Destiny, a game about farming where they make you do combat for the majority of it. Yeah, I, I don't understand why that became a thing. There, there are certain... 
it, it just comes down to like, I don't know what this was supposed to do. And, and I think maybe part of it was that in chapter three, you get a lot of companions. So they wanted to like, have you like, Oh, your companions will go out and fight for you. But then it creates this really weird thing where like your companions can actually hit the enemies so many times that then your hits don't matter. Cause the enemy is like still in their like invincibility frame state after they get hit. So like you're attacking them, but not doing any damage. It's really weird. It just, it feels so half baked. It feels like that, that part of the game was just not complete and came out of the oven and was just kind of like, Mm -hmm. not that great, but, but it's great to see so much dragon quest. I, isn't it the 30th anniversary thing in two months and we might get some more information on dragon quest 11. I think, um, I think, I think the 30th anniversary, uh, was earlier this year. But they're doing some kind of live stream or something. I can't remember if it's yeah. December or January. Yeah, I, I, I think it's January. But okay. I'm okay. not 100% sure, but I know it's in the next month or two. I'm really excited for that because I, I, I think I'm going to buy both versions because I'm an idiot. I, th- I think I'm, <laughs> I'm going to buy the 3DS and the PlayStation 4 version. I, I, I can see myself doing that as well, especially if there's uh, if there's meaningful differences between them. But uh, I, I don't know. I've had so much fun playing... Uh, I guess five Dragon Quest uh, rele- releases on 3DS and DS now that, and with a sixth one with a uh, eight coming soon, I might be more inclined to play the 3DS one first. Yeah, and and they've said uh, Hori said that he, they want to find a way to make the saves compatible between PlayStation Four and um, and 3DS, which is like mind boggling. I guess the only way you would be able to do that is to like upload it to a Dragon Quest server yeah, that yeah, the games are connected to. That, that's um, what that's how Dragon Age let you uh, import save files from old systems of, that have for Dragon Age Origins or two to any system you wanted for, uh, yeah. for Inquisition. And, and I think you know with the Nintendo Switch that would be easier to go. Like they've said, Dragon Quest Eleven will be on Nintendo's NX, so I'm guessing that means it's going to be on the Switch. Maybe not uh, in the same version. I don't know, but uh, that that could be really interesting. Um, I really want Dragon Quest Eleven, and I really want it to be. I, I think it's going to be more like Dragon Quest Eight. I, I think they need to realize that Dragon Quest Eight was the page turner. That's the game that will hit it out in all territories and not just Japan. I think yeah. you know, I, I, I understand the whimsy and I understand the like holding on tra- to to uh, tradition. And no, I'm not going to scream tradition, even though I just saw Fiddler on the Roof a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> and I know Mike really appreciated that. Thank you, Mike. I um, did. You're welcome. <laughs> We 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 have bonded over show tunes, and that's important. (laughs) Um, But like, I think they need to realize that Dragon Quest VIII is the style that they need to go for. People are craving that kind of traditional JRPG. You've got the Toriyama art style right there. Like, it's gonna it's gonna do well. It really will. I think one of the most distinctive parts of Dragon Quest VIII is how beautiful the world map is, and how yep. walk and how walking around it is just is just stunning. Seeing it in such vivid color and detail, and when yep. we saw the first images of Dragon Quest XI, I, I think the PS4 version, that w- with you know a level of scale and color that reminded me of the best parts of walking through Dragon Quest VIII. That's that got me excited for the game. I want yep. to be blown away by a Toriyama landscape like that again. I, I, I can't wait for it. Yep. And the main character looks like Trunks, so I'm I'm down. 
kind of all of them look kind of like Dragon Ball characters yeah, anyway. Kind of. Fight you. I don't, I don't know what you're talking. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I mean the great Saiyan man was the main character of Dragon Quest VIII. <laughs> <laughs> I can't unsee it now. Damn it. Okay, so that's our Dragon Quest minute. Uh, let's move on to. Uh, I should have told one of you guys to like just shout objection at this point. And Hold it. Objection. It doesn't work when I say. Uh, all right. No, it, it could be done then, Rampa. I'd be like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> no, that's wrong. Yeah. I'm not participating in this. <laughs> All right, Was let's talk Derek about free slamming your hands onto the desk, but we just couldn't hear it. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> talk. Figured. Somebody talk about Ace Attorney, for God's sake. Uh, hold it. Well, I know uh, Solosi and I both recently played and finished it. Yeah. Yeah, I finished it last weekend. Yeah, me too. I think we finished it at the same time then, because I also finished probably, it. Probably, probably within a day of each other. Yeah. Yeah. So. Man, uh, what a game. I, you said you think it's probably like your second favorite now? It's my second or third favorite in the series. I uh, I liked Ace Attorney 5 when I played it a year and a half ago or so, but I ultimately felt a little let down by it because it just uh, I, I didn't think the writing was up to par from, uh, from the first couple Ace Attorney games. But mm. this one, the new gimmicks are awesome. It has the visual upgrade of 5. And I think the writing and themes are as good as the uh, as the better Ace Attorney games. This is my second or third favorite in the series. Yeah, it's got uh, the sort of un- unrelated, like, tangential cases that you would expect there to be in a Phoenix Wright game. But uh, there's also, like, three of the cases, one, three, and five, all connect. And mm-hmm. uh, they really weave in some awesome backstory for, for Apollo in particular, the yeah. star of number four, Apollo Justice. Um, yeah, he got his time in the spotlight. He was like more of a main character than than Phoenix Wright was in this one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In um in Apollo Justice's game four, even though you control him most of the time, it sort of becomes Phoenix's game once you see Phoenix's uh, influence in the last couple of chapters. Yeah. And in in this one, it's almost the reverse. It's like Phoenix is the one that has the most attention in the first half of the game, but the final case is all Apollo's, and the the sort of closing story arc is all about Apollo Justice, which was a, a, a bit of a surprise, but not an unwelcome one, because it was pulled off pretty well, I feel. Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Um, introduces some new strong characters and mechanics. Like, the the big thing in this one is uh, the, it's set in the kingdom of Kurain, which is kind of like a Tibetan analog. Yes, I think um, so. And the people are very spiritual there, so their, their court system relies on divination seances, where people, there, there's like a high priestess, and she does the ceremony and she recalls the last moments of the deceased in like a murder trial to help um, piece together what happened. The problem is that the legal system is totally corrupt and uh, defense lawyers no longer exist. It's just prosecutors. And if anybody uh, were to act as a defense lawyer under the laws in Korain, if you're found guilty, you get the same sentence passed on you as the defendant. So, <laughs> so in case- <laughs> In case number one, Phoenix Wright is immediately just like, yeah, I'll I'll defend, you know, some kid gets uh, accused of murder and it's obviously not him, like clearly transparently not him. And you're like, Phoenix is like, yeah, I'll help him. And they're like, cool. So are you sure? Are you sure you want to help him? Because he could get the death penalty. And he's like, yeah, of course I want to help him. And then once he's actually into it, they tell him, oh, by the way, you'd you'd get the death penalty too if you didn't prove him innocent. So uh, the the game is is about uh, kind of them, Phoenix Wright and his crew, Apollo and Athena coming in and fighting these injustices, uh, more so Apollo, fighting these injustices and trying to 
uh, figure out what's happening and like where the corrupted root is of this legal system. Oh, and the Athena Sykes is the um, character that was introduced in Ace Attorney Five as the yes. as the third as the third member of their law firm. She plays kind of a smaller role in this one. She has one case all to herself, Case Four. Um, but to me, it sort of felt like a like a almost felt like a DLC case, or yeah, it's just it, totally unrelated to everything else that's happening. It, I mean, there uh, Athena's specialty is psychology, and there was a psych there was a psychology related problem in Case Four. Yeah, but uh, it's about Rakugo comedy and soba. The difference between soba noodles and uh, and udon uh, and, and udon noodles. Yeah, it was just it was not the strongest one, but um. Like taking cases one, three, and five together as an arc was extremely impressive. Yeah, they they do a really great job, and, and so that as well as thematically, the new the new gimmicks being a thing, they also tie into gameplay, of course, because when you're when they do the divination seances, you see from the the perspective of the person who died, and so the priestess is is giving her interpretation of the events, and she's like almost always wrong because she's this kind of stuck up kid who has never been told that she was wrong before. Um, and so you have to point out the inconsistencies there. And it's kind of, it's a, a really fresh take on the normal sort of gameplay of Ace Attorney where you're saying, you know, I found a statement that isn't right. Let me present a piece of evidence to contradict that or that, that exposes rather the, the contradiction or the inconsistency. That's the same thing, but instead you're using um, the senses of the deceased person. So it's like, uh, you know, oh, I, I noticed that they, even though the priestess asserts that, uh, he was running at this person. It looks like actually the, somebody else is running at him, but you just couldn't tell because of the way, you know, the, the stimuli doesn't quite match up. So I know it's super vague, but <laughs> uh, great new mechanics. The the only downside, I guess, is that those mechanics aren't featured in cases two and four at all. The, those sort of take place using the standard Phoenix Wright mold, and they're not related to the overall plot. Um no, so cases I, two and four are really just to get um, to introduce Apollo in case two, and to and to bring back characters like uh, like true like Trucy from Mace Attorney four mm-hmm. into the fold. It really it's about one, three, and five, and two and four feel like filler just to give attention to a couple other side characters. Yeah. And uh, er- Derek was addressed this a little bit, but the thing that um, blew me the most away by the uh, the new mechanics introduced in six is the how much video was included. Yeah, because I mean, Ace Attorneys one through four, it's a lot of it's really only um, attacking logical inconsistencies. But this one, uh, Ace Attorney six has has you approach visual inconsistencies much more by uh, uh, looking at security footage in one case in case two and the seances in cases one, three, and five, and it's pulled off really, really well. It's um, using evidence and testimony and setting it against video that you can. Play, pause, reverse, uh, controlled all very easy, pretty intuitively with the cu- with the touch screen. It it never really felt unfair, and the leaps of logic never felt totally insane the way they sometimes do in these games. I think there are probably a couple that I was like, what? But, sure, sure, but I, I don't but know. Something's right, so I sort of anticipate there being you know crazy bonkers stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, these these games, they always, it's, I mean, the, the defendants no. are always, like, presumed guilty. <laughs> right, and, and no, Rob, there has nothing to do with an aquarium and gravel oh, and... God. Um, well, no, what got me was, like, uh, I, I played, my first Ace Attorney game was Miles Edgeworth, 
which was pretty lenient on it's mistakes. Pretty the wor- it's also probably the worst one, I would say. Yeah, but like I still enjoyed it because I, I like Miles Edgeworth. Um, mm-hmm. But then like playing the first Ace Attorney game and like failing something because I couldn't like grasp the mystery. I've said it before on the show. I actually played those games with an FAQ just because I'm playing it for the story, and if I can pick up those logical pieces, then everything's fine. But there were a couple points where I'm like, I never in a million years would have gotten that. Like, I would have just kept picking things until you can fail. So, like, does the game, it, it, this new one, it sounds like they don't give you such uh, stingy requirements, uh, such no, it's, strict it's requirements, the rather. It, it, it's, it's, exactly it's, the same. Sa- it's the same, but I, th- I maybe it's because I've played, what, seven of them by now. You're but used to it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> the, the leaps of logic didn't seem as crazy this time. Yeah. But, I mean, but it, has, it has all the great hallmarks of... Ace Attorney games, like the um, the characters are super expressive and fun. The dialogue is really funny sometimes. The heel turns when an, uh, when someone that is presumed innocent suddenly sort of turns into a villain are among my favorite things in the series. And the, there's a couple really great ones in this one. I, I, love, I, again, I love the wrestling reference there to a heel turn. That's great. So, <laughs> so somebody went from being a face to a heel. That's, yeah, that's yes. It happens a couple. It happens several times in the series at large. And did uh, did they break uh, kayfabe? Did they did they break it? No, 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 no not really. I mean, okay. this is a game. This is a game where um, several cases in the series revolve around people literally turning into other people with with spirit channeling. I'm just seeing if we can turn this into the giant uh, bombcast by talking about wrestling. <laughs> yeah, so. I think you, I think you, mean, you mean the power bombcast. Power bombcast. Sorry. <laughs> Um, no, it sounds cool. I, I've, I've wanted to get back into Ace Attorney, but those, those games are like books to me. So like, I need to they have are. time that I can just they are. do it. Yeah, th- there were points, because like we mentioned a couple of the cases in this latest one, Slog, they, they drag a little bit, um, not because they're not interesting, because they, they are still interesting, but they're just not connected to the story as a whole. And there are points where I just kind of put it down and not touch it for a couple of days, because I wasn't you know, as invested. But once I got to the point, especially towards the end of the game, once you get to case five and that gets rolling. Also case five is like two cases in one. Yeah, case five is huge. It takes place on multiple continents. And uh, the, I think there's like three save points in the second trial phase when normally there's only one save point. Mm. Yeah. So it's, so it's, it's like, it goes on and on and on. But it's, it's fantastic. And it does get to the point where it becomes a page turner and you're like, I gotta see what's happening next. Um, have we uh, speaking of visual novels? Have we gotten a possible U.S. release date on Doncon Rampa Three yet? No, we haven't. No, they re- they recently announced a release date for uh, the PS4 version of Ultra Despair Girls, but we haven't heard concrete evidence of a release date on V3 yet. Oh my God, Rob, have we talked about Doncon Rampa since it finished? I know we're not going to spoil anything on this did, show. Did you finish it? Because I think I was yes. way ahead of you. I, yeah, I, finished, I finished it. it. I love. Oh it. my God, the ending though. Yeah. <gasps> But what's amazing is that some people, again, we're not going to spoil anything. <laughs> a, a lot of people really didn't like the ending to the future arc, but I thought that that was the the best way they could have ended it. Like, I think the way the future arc ended was so satisfying for knowing that full story, and then the way that the the uh, the past arc, uh, the despair arc, ended was just like, I need a shower. Like yeah. I, I actually hate myself right now. Like I, I thought it was great. Maybe, maybe not the best pacing. Maybe kind of a little rough in certain areas. Um, and I would have liked to have gotten to know a few of the future art characters a little bit more before they ended up brutally murdered. But, but like, ain't that the rub always with them? Well, that, that's kind of the point. Like I, I really enjoyed it. I think some people were. 
you know, it, it might be also one of those things where I hadn't had years and years to really get it into my head, the different ways that they could have ended or built up that story. I think that that's part of it. Like at, at this point, like nothing that Martin writes can make me happy when it comes to Game of Thrones, like the book series. <laughs> so like, I've, I've just made my peace with that. Like, okay, you are going to let me down because I've had five years to think about how you should end this. And when you don't nail that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think fans, I don't, I don't quite know what they wanted. I'm like I thought that was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, the the future. I think that show, uh, for being centered around a, a theme of despair, does a really damn good job of making you feel that despair as a viewer. Because I, the- I couldn't watch more than three episodes in a row. Oh my god! Yeah. Well, yeah. if if you watch the the two arcs, like the despair and future arc, and don't ever watch the final conclusive hope episode, <laughs> yep. holy shit! Like. I I was seriously like so bummed out before that episode released. Oh wow! Uh, but when, when once you, it finally came out, it it, it uh, helped a lot. Yeah, the the whole thing about the the you know worst, most awful, atrocious thing in human history, the most despair, and yeah, yeah, they weren't kidding. Like holy shit! Like this thing that had been built up over two games actually managed to work. Like yeah. it it, fe- it felt like a reasonable. Uh, reasonable conclusion. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really want to play another one. And I, I think I'll probably play it on handheld, though. I'd probably pick up the Vita version. I don't I don't see myself hogging the TV for hours upon hours of still anime images and my wife being okay with that. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, I, I don't think that works. <laughs> for me, that's, that is a Vita series, so I want to play Danganronpa V3 on the Vita. But uh, And hopefully we hear about it soon in c- coming out in English, because it comes out in Japan in January, right? Yeah, it's not like we're going to get a two-month delay to make sure we get Japanese audio. Oh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, oh, uh, can I do one last thing about Ace Attorney before we No! Yes, of uh, course rats. Of course uh, They bring back a bunch of characters from older parts of the series. This is the first uh, game that has Maya in it since the third DS one, and the first one that has Larry Butts in it since, I think, the second DS one. <laughs> So if you're so if you're uh, if you're like a longtime fan of the series, there's uh, um, Ace Attorney Six is a little heavier on the series fan service than the previous one was. So in general, if you like these games, I think Ace Attorney Five is maybe skippable, but Six isn't because it's real, real good. Yeah, cool. And it does enough different to be worth checking out if you you know aren't interested in yet another game that doesn't change it up. So yeah, it's good. He's good. Is a game. RPG fan review is good. Is good. Is good. Uh, so I think the last thing we have to talk about is Echoes of Etheria, and Jesse has been very quiet, and so I think this is this is his time to shine and talk about something he wants to talk about. Yeah, I've been waiting very patiently. No. Okay. All right, Jesse. So go ahead and get no, in there. Of course. Thanks for sharing, guys. Uh, Echoes of Etheria. It's by Dancing Dragon Games. They made what's it called? Skyborn. And it's made oh, yeah. on, yeah. So small studio made on RPG Maker, I think. And you know, did any of you play Skyborn? No, I haven't. I just I remember that we had a review of it, and I was like, oh, that looks better than I expected from the review. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was about my reaction. It like it's a solid game for a small studio that's made on uh, RPG Maker. Um. And so one thing that it shares with Skyborn, I think that 
they wanted to make a sequel to Skyborn, but they couldn't for some legal reason, which, you know, I don't know. Plug, hire a good lawyer when you're making your game um, and get your agreements right. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, you could lose out on a sequel. Are you advertising yourself as a hireable good lawyer? Uh, I don't really do that anymore, but oh, right. it was a time. Um, Skyborn had a really good, like, sense of humor. Like, the story wasn't always, like, right on point, but the dialogue was always really good. And it was, so it was very endearing in that way. Um, and Echoes of Etheria, you can see the same kind of writing, where it's like, yeah, there might be some pacing problems, but, like, you really just get to like the characters because they're well-written mm-hmm. and they're witty and clever. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's not quite turn-based. It's like, I don't know, like the combat, I actually liked Skyborn better. Like, they, they do this thing where you have a grid and your character's on a grid and you take turns smacking each other around. Um, but it, it kind of just devolves into pick the strongest skill. And it's great because you get a ton of skills, but then really you're like, what's the strongest skill that I can access, like, most cheaply? You know, for the least amount of TP or, or I forget what the, I forget what the resource is called. And it's just sort of like spam that skill, right? And so like find whatever works and like spam that. Um, so it, it may be a problem of I need to up the difficulty. I'm playing on normal difficulty, but I, I kind of find myself playing it and, you know, having Netflix on the background. Um, and, and, you know, tuning in when interesting story things are happening or when there's good puzzles, but then kind of like, okay, combat, like spam, blazing sword or whatever it is. Um, but I will say that I paid, you know, I, we did get a review copy, um, but I paid my own money for this one. So I, and I'm, I'm very pleased with the purchase. So, um, yeah, it's like it's a pretty good, like small diverting game. It's a game. It's a game. It's a game. You know, it's like if you want a small, like I'm about eight hours in, and I feel like I'm about a third of the way through. So uh, like that's appealing to me. Yeah, exactly. Like you want like a small contained experience. Um, it's not a very expensive game because it's an indie game. Um, you know, just try it out. I, I really value uh, short but dense and satisfying RPG experiences now since my time is more limited. So like, I, I played a, a Child of Light for the first time earlier this year, and that mm-hmm. game is seven and a half hours and just beautiful and fun and great, and I want more games like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they don't all have to be Dragon Quest Seven as much as... Yeah, yeah I, I can enjoy a 70-hour Dragon Quest Seven and also enjoy a seven-hour Child of Light. I, I, want, I want both, and I'm glad that at least there are games like uh, Echoes of Etheria and Child of Light that seem to be scratching that itch a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm looking forward to playing Tyranny. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. That's the new game from the Obsidian guys. We did an interview with their uh, lead director a couple weeks ago, and... I'm looking forward to the fact that they've said they wanted to make something smaller than Pillars of Eternity. 
Because pillars, like, you know, we, I, I bounced right off that world. I just didn't find it all that interesting. And then also the fact that it was going to be like an 80 hour investment was kind of, no, it's, it's not 80 hours. Well, no. the way Steven played it, it was like 80 hours, <laughs> but, but like, it's, it, it's a good 40. Right. Sure. And, and, but I think the tyranny, you know, that bronze age look of that game. Also, am I the only one that notices that tyranny looks a hell of a lot like the Batman animated series? Cause that's one of the reasons I like it so much. It's got those real hard edges on all the character designs. Yeah, yeah I guess so. Those, yeah. Uh, those Bruce Tim clefted chins. Well, but I, I really like that art design. And so that game being 25 hours and having a different style of art. Uh, is probably going to get my attention more than Pillars. And then maybe that makes me go back and play Pillars. You know what I mean? Like, that could be one of those those things where, like, oh, now I understand these mechanics. I feel comfortable with it. I'm probably going to start Tyranny on easy because I I really, with those, uh, th- those kind of real-time RPG combat systems... I feel like you got to get used to it at first, like all how much micromanagement is involved yeah. before you can really take the training wheels off. Like that's that's where Dragon Age Origins beat the snot out of me the first time I played that. That game puts its hardest combat encounters in like the first three hours. Yeah, the the, the maybe the hardest part of the game is uh, go, is going up that watchtower. Yeah, like you walk into a room and all of a sudden you're on fire and you've had oil spilled on you and the game's like f you and it's like <laughs> okay, I actually never want to play this game ever yeah, again. Well, like, well, once you have a party of five people, you have enough levels and skills that you're starting to get stronger than the than the mobs around you. It's yeah. it's it's not the most even difficulty curve. No, it, it it's weird because that game I always have to put it on nightmare around the time I get a blood mage because the game's just over at that point like they, blood, blood magic is a blood magic arcane warrior or a blood magic uh, uh blasting mage is just r- rips that game in half should i play pillars as a cypher I, I tried playing as a ranger at first and i really didn't like it and then steven was like no you should have made a uh should have made a cypher um cyphers are really great i the uh the cypher that you get in the game is maybe my favorite uh party member that you get i played it as a paladin but that once i figured out the the cyphers um skills a little bit she was almost a permanent entry in my i uh it, i don't i don't know if playing is it as cypher is is how you go is how you want to do it depending on your preference but it, it's it's one of the cooler classes in pillars of eternity i never finished that game i played it about ten or fifteen hours, but I liked all of it. I'd, I'd definitely be happy to revisit it down the line, but there's just yeah. too many games. Uh, there are too many games. Uh, so I, I, the last thing for me was uh, I played, or I tried to play a little bit of Dishonored Two, but that game is uh, not doing so well on PC right now. Um, I'm getting playable frame rates, but I, th- if your frame rate's going from sixty to thirty to forty-five to sixty to thirty to forty-five, like, mm. I, I, I would rather the game just run at thirty at that point. Like I don't like inconsistent frame rates, so I'm probably gonna go in and just uh, just end up tweaking the frame rate. But that th- playing that game and like now waiting for a patch for it has actually made me go back and play a little bit more Deus Ex: Mankind Divided, and I actually think that Deus Ex, uh, Dishonored 2, and Fallout 4 all kind of have the same problem, which is that they are so damn similar to their previous games that they don't stand out in my head at all. Like, like at this point, I might as well just be playing glorified expansion packs. Like, yeah, they do some things better. Like Dishonored 2, the movement's better. And Deus Ex, you have a lot more options, and the levels are bigger. But, like, they're all the same damn game again. And I, I don't know if this is maybe me getting older or a little bit more jaded, but, like, 
I don't know. Am I, am I the only one that's kind of feeling that with gaming a little bit right now? It's like well, I wait four or five years for a game that's so damn similar to the previous one. It's like, what's the point? I didn't feel that way with Deus Ex. I haven't played, um, I forget the other game, Dishonored, but I, I felt like the refinements in Deus Ex were so good. Like they, they put it so much over what had happened in Human Revolution mm-hmm. that like that was enough for me. Because I, I enjoyed Human Revolution, but then like here's Human Revolution, but we made everything better. Yeah, and and it definitely is better. Like I, I played a little bit of Human Revolution right before Mankind Divided came out, and yes, it is a better game. I just I don't know. I I, I guess I'm kind of still in that you know sequel mo- mode. Uh, what did Movie Bob say one time when he was reviewing uh, The Raid Two? And he was like, do you remember back in the day when, like, you played an NES game and the first game was, like, kind of small and confined? And then the second game, like, just blew it out into this giant world and was so vastly different. I kind of miss those days a little bit. I I miss it when a sequel was just, like, balls to the walls. Here's everything. And you've never seen anything like this before. Um, I'll probably end up finishing Mankind Divided right now. Like, I'm really in a sneaky stealth kind of mood, and with Dishonored 2 not really uh, being up to snuff right now, I, I, I'm willing to wait on that for a little bit. It's just, it's a bummer that that game came out in such a rocky state on PC. I've, I think PC gaming has been getting a little bit of a short shrift lately from developers. You know, there, there's no reason why these computers can't run games at better frame rates than on the consoles. Like, that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's a little bit of a bummer, but it gives me time to play other games like Dragon Quest VII. So, <laughs> uh, as we move into the news, um, uh, we got a lot of news stories to address. But I think the first one, the most immediate one, is the uh, the two month delay on Persona Five. Yeah. Um, delay till April, so not a huge delay. But I got, I gotta say, I find the reasoning BS. Like, it's great that we're getting the Japanese audio, but like, really, that that takes an extra two months. Yeah, it's well. They had to go through a lot, I'm sure, to secure the the rights to that, and sure. I'm sure it, it cost them plenty of money too. Sure. Um, okay. So okay. it's nice that they're releasing that for yeah. They're they're releasing that as a free thing, which is great because a lot of people really were asking for that. I I don't think that that's the I, they're I don't think they said that's the reason why it's delayed. That's just sort of like the consolation okay, prize. So, okay, I get you. So. Like I'm fine with this game being delayed. This is this is kind of like whenever a game is delayed, and like we we talked about this with Final Fantasy 15. Like, if you need to delay your game, that's fine. But just say you're delaying it. I almost feel like PR speak is kind of ruining this right now. Like with Bloodborne, they were like, "We need another month," and it was like, "Okay, that's fine with me." Like Last Guardian, they were like, "We need another month." Okay, that that sounds perfectly reasonable. Final Fantasy XV. Well, we have a day one patch that we really want to incorporate into the main game. Yeah. Really, really, that's that doesn't sound right. Like you you need a two month delay to incorporate a day one patch. Like that, so, something don't add up right here. Like that I, again. If you have to delay your game, just delay your goddamn game. Like the, but this is. I mean, this is also a delay for localization. Right? Yeah, the game's already out. And uh, doesn't isn't there something like three times as much dialogue to translate as there was in Persona 4, which was a fairly dense game already? Sure. And and now, do we think that maybe the uh, the strike is affecting this too? The voice actors union strike could that be affecting uh, this? I don't mm. know because they did mm. say that they are uh, 
recording additional voice lines yeah. using this time. So obviously they're using the same actors and they're reprising their roles. So um, I don't think so. I, I know that the, the strike only applied to games, I want to say, that went into production after February 2015. So I don't know how long ago they recorded these voices. Of course, then the actors have to decide whether or not they want to participate um, in the recording process if they've elected to strike. But No scams. Yeah. And again, I'm totally fine with this being delayed. I just, you know, if you need to delay it, delay it. And, you know, maybe, uh, Derek, you could be 100% right. Maybe they didn't put a reason. Maybe I was reading into it. We know how gaming headlines have gotten a little ridiculous, and we're going to talk about that in a few seconds. But, like, you know, I'm totally fine with this delay. Uh, that gives us an extra two months to play the crap load of games. That gives Horizon uh, Zero Dawn a little chance to breathe, because otherwise I think that game gets steamrolled. Horizon Zero Dawn comes out on my birthday. <laughs> and that game looks awesome. That game looks really, really good. And so I, I, I like the idea of a new IP having a little bit of room to breathe. I think that's World, a really good thing. Mecha dinosaur hunting. I, dude, I'm down. Uh, that, that game looks great. I, I, I'm. I, mm. I feel like I feel like that studio that uh, is the same group that did the Killzone games were just so sick of making just gray and brown Killzone shooters that they just were desperate to make a game bursting with color and personality, and this is what we got as a result. Yeah, I'm glad, too. Yeah, it looks awesome. I mean, uh, those you go all the way back to the first Killzone. That was announced as the Halo killer with, like, gra- <laughs> with, right. like, with, like grainy-ass videos that were released. Kind of like, like, remember when they were making the Final Fantasy, like, Spirits Within movie, and we'd get, like, three-second clips, like, every year? Like, this is what we're working on, like... That's the way they were treating Killzone, and then it came out, and it was just a pile of poop. It was just like, ooh. It wasn't really a pile of crap. It was it was competent and a little boring, which is yes. not which is not a Halo killer. Okay, I, I think that was a very diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, and then they got they got better with those games. Two and three were fun. Like, I am diplomatic AF. Yes. Uh, so PG-rated <laughs> podcast. So let's move away from Persona 5. Yes, it's been delayed. Relax. Everybody calm down. Um, let's, uh, let's move into Bethesda. Um, being, uh, I, I guess the internet would say that they're being a little crappy right now. So Bethesda has announced that they are not going to be giving out early review code for their games. They will give games out to journalists a day early. Um, and, you know, the internet rightfully so, in a lot of ways, was really, really pissed off about this. But at the same time, I I kind of fall into a, this is bad for the consumer. Like, I will agree with that. Consumers should be informed about the games that they plan on purchasing. They should have as much information as they can about purchasing a game. Believe me, I am super pissed off about the performance issues in Dishonored 2 right now. But at the same time, these are the same gaming journalists who leaked design documents about Fallout 4 years before the game was even announced. Uh, The same dudes and uh, guys and gals who started attacking Bethesda when they said they weren't going to have early review copies for Doom, saying, you know, headline articles like, "Uh uh-oh, we're not getting Doom code, you know what that means. Like, I kind of feel like gaming journalists sort of dug their own grave here a little bit, and it's... Well, I mean, there's not without evidence for that. Like, I mean, uh, Assassin's Creed Unity had that thing, and, uh, and that was... 
uh, and that game was, was a disaster. But... but what was disgusting about Assassin's Creed Unity was that they were requiring that if you took the early review code, your review could not be posted until the game was available. So right. you could not post a review until like 9 a.m. the day of release. That was disgusting. Like that, that to me was like, okay, that's on a whole other level of wow. Like that's you're not letting people tell what this game actually is. I, I, I'm in agreement with you on that. But I, I think that, you know, we've been hearing a lot and we, we watch a lot of clickbait articles online and people putting up, you know, just this week there were articles like, you know, three days into Watch Dogs 2 being out. You know, Watch Dogs 2 has the best video game universe ever created. Like, three days? Really? Three days? Yeah, let's, and, let's chill out. But like, the hyperbolic articles, the growing irrelevance of gaming journalism, I will freely admit that that's a very real thing right now with YouTube videos and, and people showing games for hours on end before they're released. I think that games journalists have been kind of sticking their fingers in their ears saying, you know, we're still relevant, we're still relevant. But the way that they've tried to stay relevant has just poisoned the water between a lot of studios publishers, PR people, and the gaming journalists that, yeah, you guys are irrelevant now. They will now give a copy of the Skyrim Special Edition to a YouTuber who will show the game for an hour online. And honestly, as a consumer, I will learn more from watching an hour of someone play a video game than reading an article about it. Mm-hmm. I, I hate I hate to say it, but like I, I can learn more about whether or not I want to purchase that game. So I don't... I don't know how you combat this, and again, I do think it's bad for the consumer in a lot of ways, but gaming journalists, y'all did this to yourself. You really did. Like, article after article, just, you know, just this week, Kotaku put up an article where, because the phrase sneak F was in Dishonored 2, they were like, see, that's a reference to that uh, that email that we got a hold of about the new Prey and the Bethesda PR people calling us a bunch of sneaky, sneaky effers. See, we're still relevant. I'm like, grow the hell what? up. Like, yeah. it, was disgu- it, it, was, it was the one Kotaku guy who's like, see, who always has to mention that they're blacklisted by Bethesda. Oh, I- like, always has to, Jason Trier always has to mention that he's blacklisted by Kotaku. I've met Jason he seems like a really nice guy, but like, dude, if you have to keep mentioning the fact that you're blacklisted by Bethesda, you're kind of being an ass about the whole thing. You're kind of taking a holier-than-thou position, and I'm sorry, you guys released a bunch of design documents about a game that wasn't even announced yet. Do you think maybe the publisher would have been a little pissed off with you? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think that maybe the fact that apparently the whole screenplay for Game of Thrones Season 7 has leaked... Do you think that maybe those people are really pissed off about that right now? I didn't know that was happening. Or that yeah. had happened. Yeah, yeah don't. I mean, that's and that's the problem. Like, it sets game journalism apart from any other other sort of mainstream sorts of journalism is that we're reliant so heavily on on the industry that we report on, right? Sure, like, sure. You know, a, a a regular news outlet like they can go. They can they can investigate. They can you know take these other avenues, find other sources to do reporting. Like we kind of just have to rely on whatever press release they send us. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the oh I had a I had a point and I lost it. But you you also have the fact that like Jesse's saying, 
you ha- you want investigative journalism into the games industry, like when all the the stories broke about like the EA wives, like the horrible working conditions at Rockstar during Red Dead Redemption and LA Noir. Like those are really really important stories that people want to have access to. But when things start leaking and potentially you could ruin an experience for consumers and you're reporting on it like that, that's kind of dangerous a little bit. And so. You have these YouTubers who are going to slowly eat up the video game journalism market. These journalists have to figure out other ways, and they have to reestablish those ties when it comes to reporting on video games. I, this was the point I, I was willing to make. I was just I was doing all that word salad so I could remember my point. <laughs> people were people were losing their minds at Bethesda for not giving out review code. Didn't really stop people from having a review up for, for Dishonored Two within 48 hours of release. So really, like, if you want a really good video game critique, how can you say that you were able to... that works, yeah. Yeah, how are you able to say you were able to successfully critique a game that would probably take most gamers 10 hours to complete? Over two days, you were able to play the game, give it some thought, write a review of it, and and not be a pile of crap. Like, I'm sorry, but there's a reason my Dragon Quest Builders review was so late. It's because I was busting my ass to play that game and give it everything I got. And and John Tucker was right to make me play it the whole way through. And I was right to play all of Shin Megami Tensei IV Apocalypse because the ending of that game kind of ruined the whole experience for me. So what do... What do readers want? And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of consumers of video game journalism want to have their opinions validated. Oh, they of they yeah. want to have their purchases validated. They want to feel good that they spent $60 on a game. Oh, this game got a 9. I feel good about my purchase. Well, it got an 8.5. Now I'm going to post on a message board about how terrible this is. Ah! Like... You know, and then you then you have the video game reviewers who are going out and they're giving low scores or high scores just to get attention. Like it's it's vicious, and I want. I re- okay, well that that I kind of take issue with because I really think that if there there is if there are people out there giving lower high scores on purpose just to get attention or to get hits for their site, like that is the extreme minority. Oh sure, sure, sure. I, I that was not meant to say that that was a vast majority of people. I I no, Derek, you're right to call me out on that. You're right. But I just, if we want to have deep, meaningful conversation about gaming, and I know how silly that sounds to some people, but if you really want to talk about how games can get better and have a critical analysis of video games, it takes time. Like, one of my favorite YouTubers is Matthew Matosis. He's the guy who did, like, an hour-long video on Dark Souls 2 that was the best critical analysis of that game I had ever seen. And he did it, like, a year after the game's release. He had to play it over and over again. And so, but at that point, then is anybody even paying attention? So you have this, you have this hard spectrum of, well, I want to get my review out in a timely manner, but at the same time, I want it to be critical. And I was running into that with Dragon Quest Builders. Like, I know my review was very late compared to a lot of sites, but I really wanted it to be a critical review. I wanted to play, you know, the game to completion in order to feel good about my assessment. And so my question is to, consumers of video game journalism who were up in arms over this Bethesda thing, what do you really want out of video games journalism? Do you want people to give a critical analysis? Well, that takes time. Or do you just want review scores on the day of release? I think they just want review scores on the day of release. I think they do too. 
I, I really do. And I, I love how right now uh, all the Watch Dogs commercials have uh, IGN quotes. <laughs> and right now IGN's provisional review of Watch Dogs 2 is a 6.5. Hmm. Hmm. But they're just cherry picking quotes from it. Right, right. They're just well, and we've had companies do that to us too. Like we've been on a couple video game commercials, and you know we we didn't maybe endorse that game quite that much, but there was a line of dialogue that they really liked. So again, like I I don't I get it, and I get why people are pissed off. And for the consumers out there, I think the Bethesda thing is bad form, but at the same time. If games journalism is going to continue to be the, you know, does the Nintendo Switch really need Zelda? Like, like <laughs> if we're gonna, if we're gonna continue to do that kind of BS, like here are the top ten reasons why the new Zelda will be amazing, or here are the reasons why the Last Guardian can't live up to the hype. Like, I just stop trying to be relevant and just be relevant. You know what I mean? Right. Like, well, just, they're doing what much of journalism is. Done right is to go for like the the easiest like breadth of of story to write rather than digging down deep right. So you mentioned it's 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 hard to be relevant when you have YouTube videos and people to, and you can just watch a, an hour of gameplay. But for me, like I don't want to spend an hour watching someone play a game. Like sure. I just want to spend ten minutes reading like a smart person, you know, and their thoughts about the game. So. I would actually prefer that if I could get it somewhere. Sure, and that totally makes sense, and that's why it should be available to you. You know, wouldn't argue the point. I think that I think that that is important. I just, again, I I want to, and I think this dovetails nicely into our next topic, which is, you know, I want consumers to tell us what they want because all I've heard for the past, you know, five years with Diablo three is we want a goddamn necromancer. You get a necromancer in the next, you know, major update. And if you read the message boards, it's just pure bile right now. Bitching. Yeah. The Diablo community is very upset right now that they did not get exactly what they wanted from BlizzCon. And I, I, um, either I think what they wanted was either an expansion or Diablo Four, and what they got instead was a couple of very cool free updates um, happening throughout 2017, and then the Necromancer as a downloadable, uh, a paid download DLC class releasing in the second half of 2017. Right, right, and uh, I've personally like I've watched a little bit of the Diablo One in Diablo Three, and they've. I, I absolutely love what they've done to the art style and like taken animation <laughs> yeah, frames out. It looks so cool, yeah. It looks yeah. so good. Instead of having 360 range of motion, they have eight-way motion uh, movement, and they took away around um, 20 to 25 percent of the animation frames, so they move around sort of chunk, uh, like choppily. It it but looks terrific, it. and they're bringing, they're, and they're bringing back the audio from uh, the original D1 as well. I, I love the look of taking those animations out because it, now it has this like rotoscope stop motion look to it that is just oh so goddamn good. Yeah. Uh, um. But like if you read and, uh, and the, I'm sorry and and that thing is free and is coming yes. in January. And and if you read the internet, you would think that Blizzard walked into someone's house and shot their puppy. Like it it is horrible. Like. And, and again, pe- uh, one of my friends said this to me years ago. He was like, well, people only go online to bitch. 
and I think in a lot of ways he was right. Like you never read positivity on the internet. It's very, very rare. It's the exception, not the rule. It's so like to be a game designer right now, like I would just feel horrible 24 seven. Like, what do you do to make people happy? And I, I just don't, you know, people arguing over review scores, people arguing over free updates to video games. Like, you know, I, I just don't get it anymore. I, I just, it, it's, you know, we're, we're on the journalism side of this. And there's a reason why I don't really interact that much with people online. There's a reason I don't have a Twitter is because I can't take this level of negativity. Like it, and that's coming from me, guys. Like that, I just, I can't deal with it because it's just, it's inarticulated BS most of the time. It's just horrible. Yes, uh, but uh, speaking to Diablo specifically, um, Diablo is in such a weird place can, uh, relative to the other five Blizzard franchises going on right now. Because it's the only one that doesn't have ongoing monetization. Yes. All of the all of the other ones have DLC or a subscription model in WoW's case, and are making money hand over fist with small microtransactions. Diablo may have you know thrown a turd in the punch bowl when the auction house <laughs> failed so spectacularly early on in Diablo 3's history. So since the Reaper of Souls came on, which was which is fantastic and one of the best video game expansions ever, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, like, Diablo 3 has been this really, really great experience, but has gotten maybe a little... Uh, the the complaint about it prior to BlizzCon was that his, the loop of it had gotten a little stale. They would just uh, have new items and some new small things every three or four months. Mm-hmm. And I think fans really wanted a big expansion at the level of a Reaper of Souls, but Blizzard themselves, who have not been making a ton of money off of Diablo 3, other than the initial, other than sale, direct sales, I think they want to experiment with different, with different, uh, DLC models now. Sure. So if, sure. If, the, if the Necromancer thing is successful, and we don't know how much it costs yet, but I'm buying it as long as it's, you know, under my paycheck for those two weeks. I would um, say it's gonna be 10 to 15 bucks, probably. My guess would be twenty, but I'm not. I'm not totally certain. It's it's a uh, you get the male and female necromancer playable plus two character slots, a new stash tab, and some small I, cosmetic things. I could see the necromancer. I, I'm not meaning to derail you, but I could see the no, necromancer. I could see the necromancer update getting bigger and then getting to twenty bucks. You know what I mean? Like if they included a couple new areas or something. Right. It, it, it feels. I think you're right. It feels like they've kind of said to themselves, let's try something a little bit different right now because, you know, they've done this whole character thing with Heroes of the Storm. Yeah, and, uh, and, and just, just to look at the at the numbers a little bit, Heroes of the Storm releases a new character every three or four weeks, and those characters are $10. So uh, having, having like, Diablo 3's first individual character DLC only be 10 for something that is, you know, increases the number of playable characters by 16%, <laughs> Is uh, I, I think that feels That's, like yeah, more than a ten dollar uh, deal to me, but I, I'm gonna get it regardless. I, I know I will. I, I just think that the I can understand it. I was hoping for an expansion too, but you know we we got a cool anniversary thing. We got a new character class coming. I think the Necromancer looks badass. I am so on board with this. He's one of my favorite character classes I, ever in a video game. I, I watched one of the uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, man, but I watched one of the panels from it. Did you see the Army of Skeletons spell that they added? Yep. 
Oh, man. I can't it, wait to spam that over and over. It looks really good, but again, I just... Uh, if you hang out in the dark corners of the internet sometimes, you, you would just think that, like, Blizzard was out to screw people, and so I... Yeah, I, yeah they, they, they feel betrayed that Blizzard didn't give them more when they've been giving them a lot of very cool free things all the time. It's... It, it, I mean, I, I hate to use this word, word, but it really um, stinks of entitlement. It does. Like, like, like what, what do they have to do to actually satisfy these people when they, when they are addressing something exactly what they wanted, giving a lot of cool stuff for free, and the reaction is overwhelmingly negative? Yeah. I mean, if you, go, if you research, do a Google search and limit the results to, like, the – I don't know, year or two years after Diablo 3 first launched. Oh, and there's there, there are forum posts where people made mock-up builds for Necromancer. And yeah. people are like, oh my god, sounds amazing. And they have like all this concept art that people made. I mean, the, I just, I don't get it. It's like, what do you want, fans? What they want is to complain, is to not be satisfied by things. Right, I, right. Or maybe maybe their tastes have changed over the years, but it's just like it's so weird that it seems to have gone unanimously from like, oh my god, you know what this game needs is a necromancer to, oh, I can't believe they're being lazy and adding a necromancer instead of doing new stuff. It's like, what? what? Especially since, since Diablo three, like I mentioned before, doesn't have ongoing sources of revenue the way every other one does, every other Blizzard property does. So Blizzard is a little hesitant to put a lot of budget into Diablo three. What's the ongoing revenue for StarCraft? Oh, um, they the expansions. Well, they had the three expansions, and they did some special mission packs starring oh, the starring right, the right, 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 right. starring the ghost character Nova. But okay. I mean, that barely counts. <laughs> They're yeah. just ahead of Diablo in that department. You, you know what I want to throw out there, and I, and mm-hmm. I I know this is going to sound uh, out of nowhere, but go with me on this. I think my game of the year is Hitman, and I'll tell you why. They pulled off the episodic model. They have made that a game that I have played all year. I have been excited for every level that they have released. They have updated that game to hell and back with different types of missions, different types of events. They have given the industry a giant glowing PowerPoint of this is how you do episodic content. And I think Diablo 3 should take a big look at that and go, Oh, I see what you did there. Like some interesting challenge rooms that you could do. Uh, it, Hitman has been one of the most ingro- like today I did the chef. I had the the escal- I had the uh, one-time elusive target of the chef and I only have one week to kill him and you can't uh you only get one shot to kill him if you die in the mission you can't restart it and I blew him and his entire entourage up with a proximity mine and felt so goddamn good. And that is like a gaming memory for me right now. And Hitman's not perfect. They need to monetize. They need to figure out how to tie in rewards in the game to performance in the game. I really hope they nail that with season two. But I think that episodic model that everybody was losing their minds over and saying this was going to be so terrible, Hitman proved it better than any other any other game on the market right now. Like just head and shoulders above everything else. That game is phenomenal. And I think that if Diablo went that route of, you know, some kind of mini missions that they would release every month or here's, you know, here's an enemy that you can only kill once, like it's only available in this short period of time. And if that enemy kills you, you don't get another crack at it. it. There's a lot of really cool stuff you can do that to make your game feel persistent and alive. And that's really cool to me right now as a gamer. 
Me, on the other hand, uh, I hate missable content in games. So sure, drive sure. Me nuts. I, no, I, I, and I, that's something you have to deal with with Hitman, and I, I, I get it, Derek. I can understand how that would. I killed myself on the Gary Busey mission. I accidentally killed myself. I blew myself up, not knowing how to place a mine, and I was so pissed. I didn't play the game for like a month. But man, but here's the thing, and this is what one of my colleagues reminded me of when I got so angry with the original XCOM. I remember that, Derek. Yeah. I re- that's a story in my head that I look back on and I laugh at. At the time, I've never been angrier, <laughs> but it was so cool to think about now. And I think, you know, missable content can be very dangerous, especially if it's tied into like, you know, major rewards or something. But mm-hmm. man, I just think that that would be so cool. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Blizzard tries something like that with one of their products in the near future. I think I, Hitman has been a giant success. I have to say, I also really like just that we live in a world where you can download a murder Gary Busey mission yes. and then carry it out. It was so awesome, and that, and again, that game's a little you're, stiff. Really, the weapon one fantasy, I guess. It, it, Hitman is a, you're just gonna fight him in the rain, just like <laughs> beat, just beat the crap out of him. See, this is why I need Celosi on this show because we get each other's references. Mm-hmm. But like, um, wrestling, I, lethal weapon. We we do what we can. Show tunes. Um, yeah. But I'm not I, throwing I, away my shot this time. Oh golly, the Skyla sisters. Um, Work. I think that Hitman could really show the industry how to do some really cool stuff. And they didn't monetize it beyond the base game. If you spent $60 on the base game, you got it, and then you got all the content on top of it. That's the right way to do it. And they've already announced another season of Hitman. I'm so down with this, and I think other games can really take advantage of it. I, I know that sounded... I know that sounded off topic, but hear me out, you know, to our listeners. I think that that's a really cool way future for gaming. It, it's a successful model that was very popular. I mean, I mean, Hitman's fans are calling, I, I think, what is this, uh, hit season one of Hitman Go? or uh, It's Hitman season, Go. they've officially dubbed it season one, and they are already saying right. that they're working on season two and three. People are calling, are saying that season one was the best Hitman game, and it uses yes. a, a, this episodic DLC model that might it feels like the future in a little a little bit. Because yeah. I mean, I mean, Telltale's been doing this episodic thing for several a couple years now, and you have things like uh, uh, oh shoot, what was that French game that was published by Square Enix last year? Uh, Ooh, sort of an adventure. Sort of a an adventure game with a, a girl that could travel through time. Oh, oh uh, strange. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, like like episodic games like that are getting better, and their delivery system for episodic content is are getting smarter. So this, and and you know, uh, fans are getting more comfortable with these models. It, it, in a way, that Hitman Season One feels like the future. Yep, I would agree with you. I'm I'm very on board with all of this, and I, I agree with Derek's point. I think there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, and they could really screw it up. And Hitman was in a lot of danger of being screwed up. But man, did they pull it off! And it also shows that the episodic model doesn't have to just work with um, with narrative-based games, because by adding things to previous missions in Hitman, they're making you go back and play the game differently, and that's really cool. Especially the way they like vary up the mission design. Ah, that game is just so. I, I played it for like ten hours last weekend. I just went nuts with the escalation missions, just all these different little puzzles, and I just was like, "How the hell am I going to kill that guy?" 
Like it's that's a really cool game. I really like it, and I recommend it to everyone. So. I think that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, hopefully, everybody had a good time. I did. Yeah. I always, I always have a good time when I get to, you know, mouth off on Random Encounter. Awesome. <laughs> yep. Awesome. So, uh, thanks again for listening to the show, everyone. As always, please subscribe to us on iTunes or through the RSS feed. Um, I believe my second and third semesters at school, I, yeah, we have a tri-semester system here. I think I'll have a little bit more time to get more recordings in. The first trimester was, uh, I, I believe the uh, term for it is absolutely nuts. So I didn't really have any free time. I, I think even on the boards, you guys noticed I wasn't around that much. Like, yeah. I've just been that damn busy. So hopefully now with things settling down a little bit, I can get some more uh, regular podcasts out there. Uh, please send us uh, listener mails. We are compiling, compiling those. We will talk about them. And uh, I guess that's it for Derek, Mike, and Jesse. We will see you all later. Alola, friends. Alola, indeed. Poplio is awesome. Hold it. Rowlet's better. We love Poplio. Poplio's my pick, so. Objection. Get, get bent. <laughs>